2: and
3: enjoy the show.
2: Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit delivery service that delivers mouth-watering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients right to your door each and every month to help make cooking at home fun, easy, and affordable. And by Chilling Tales' very own 2019 Evil Idol Competition, our fourth annual horror voice acting competition going on now exclusively on our YouTube channel. I'll be back after our first story tonight to share a bit more information about HelloFresh and how they can help you make your life just a bit easier and far more delicious. Not to mention, a special offer they've got for those of you in our listening audience. Until then, settle in. Get cozy. And prepare to be unsettled. The show's about to begin.
3: <laughs> it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling tales for darkness.
2: Ah. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about terrifying conditions, deranged decisions, killer comedy. I'm Otis Jiry, host of this Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fifth season. My show is available on iTunes wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight, I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my good friend Steve Taylor, And I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life our voice talents Duchess Dark, Luis Bermudez, and Paul J. McSorley. All of them top performing contestants and second-round competitors in Shelling Tales for Dark Knights 2000 19 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and other entries in the competition second round is on now and the first handful of entries have been posted but there's plenty more to come and plenty of time to vote and help decide who advances so check out our channel and join in the deliciously dark fun yet to come again you can find ctfdn and the evil idol competition on youtube just search chilling tales for dark nights youtube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesfordarknights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds. Embrace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights. And turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is written by an author who goes by the moniker Queen of the Moths and is voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 42, Duchess Dart. In it, we meet a pair of siblings reunited after a sister's moved to Animal. Where, to the chagrin of her family, she's picked up some of the local superstitions. But is there more to the backwood beliefs than it appears? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Wrapped in Ribbon.
1: It's a simple tradition. For every night you receive a gift throughout the week of the fall equinox, you must leave a wildflower in exchange." This is what my sister Kate told me when I came to visit her in late September. She'd been living in a small town in Panama for six months, and she'd already picked up on a lot of the local superstitions. The very first night I was there, I noticed a brass tray on every porch, each containing a bundle of flowers wrapped in old faded ribbons. Most of them were red or had been in a past life, but there were a few blues scattered among them. I was the one who asked about it, so when my sister went off on a tirade about Las Malvadas, as well as something that loosely translates to the culling of souls, I listened politely and didn't tell her how ridiculous she sounded. Back in Michigan, she'd never been the gullible type. We've both always liked the idea of ghosts and ghouls, but we knew that sort of thing didn't actually exist, or at least we did. The whole thing made me kind of uncomfortable, just how serious she was about it. But at the end of the day, I figured it was harmless enough. I even helped her pick some wildflowers behind the house to put in the offering tray. In the morning, there was a little figurine carved from wood, wrapped in another ribbon. My sister was relieved to see that the ribbon was red, but she brushed me off when I asked her what it meant to get a different color. By that point, I actually thought that tradition was kind of cute. I imagined little old women going out at night and leaving trinkets for the neighborhood, taking only flowers as payment. It was a shame the whole thing was based on fear, but the gesture itself seemed kind of nice in a quaint sort of way. Over the next few days, we traveled all over the city and kept busy until evening. I would have forgotten about the offerings completely if it weren't for my sister making a point of putting those flowers out each night. Eventually, she had to go back to work, but I was able to entertain myself well enough. I hit up some of the local markets and brushed up on my Spanish while getting plastered with strangers. My sister was usually back in time to have dinner with me, But one night, she called to let me know that she'd be working late. She didn't expect to be home until the wee hours of the morning, so I thought I'd hit up another nearby bar to pass the time. Don't forget to put out the flowers, my sister told me before we hung up. I'm serious. They need to be on the tray by midnight. Yeah, yeah, I replied. I'll put them out. I'm not kidding, Matt. She said all uptight and somber like when she'd first explained it to me. I'll put him out." I said this trying to hide my annoyance from my voice. It was one thing when she wanted to take part in this silly thing, but I shouldn't have to be dragged into it. Still, it was a simple task, nothing worth arguing over. We said goodbye and I got ready to go. I stumbled in around one and fumbled with my keys way longer than was reasonable. All I could think about at that point was getting to bed. I plopped down on the futon and was almost out completely when I remembered the flowers. It took every ounce of strength I had just to sit up. I faced the front door and it suddenly seemed 50 miles away. I had promised my sister, and I didn't want to go back on that. But the more I thought about it, the more pointless it all seemed. She wouldn't even notice that I hadn't put out the flowers, since whoever was picking them up would have grabbed them by then. Maybe she wouldn't get a gift because of my failure to follow through, but I just didn't have the energy to worry about that now. With a twinge of guilt that quickly turned into irritation, I flopped over and passed out. In the morning, I thought about what my sister would do if she found out. She had been making a huge deal over it from the start, and I really didn't want this to sour my entire visit. I checked the altar as soon as I got up, and much to my relief, There was another gift on the tray. No harm, no foul. This time, it sort of looked like a doll made of twigs and animal hair. Honestly, it was pretty creepy. I decided to let my sister deal with it herself, then went to the kitchen for breakfast. I thought it was over from there. But the moment my sister stepped outside, she started freaking out. What did you do? She screamed. My stomach twisted, but I tried to play it cool. What? What's wrong? She held up the gift, thrusting it into my face as if it were damning evidence. I still didn't understand the problem, so she pointed at the ribbon tied around the doll's middle. If you put the flowers out like you should have, this would be red, not blue. I felt guilty for a moment, but the more upset she got, the more it started to freak me out. I was afraid she might be unwell. Like maybe this wasn't just superstition, but an underlying mental illness that was only surfacing now. There was no way to justify the way she was acting. Look, Kate, I'm sorry. I said this, trying to calm her down. But she wouldn't let me finish. Do you know what we have to do now? We have to bind the flowers and blood. I let that hang in the air between us for a moment before I offered an incredulous what? You put a target on this household, and the only way to appease Las Malvadas now is to spill your own blood. I stood there, dumbfounded, as she ran to the kitchen. I was seriously getting scared. This wasn't like her, getting all worked up over a local myth. I would have thought she was messing with me if she weren't so genuinely distraught... When I finally followed her to the kitchen, though, I could no longer pretend this was no big deal. What are you doing? I asked, hovering in the doorway. Kate had the knife against her wrist, staring down at it over the sink. Below her arm was a saucer, strategically placed beneath the area she was about to cut. Stop it, Kate. You're scaring me. Stop this. She looked over at me. Tears rushing down her face, and I was torn between wanting to comfort her and wanting to take her to the emergency room. Kate, you're sick. You need to get to a doctor. Don't patronize me, she screamed, and I pressed my back against the wall. She'd never shouted at me like that before. Kate turned back to the sink, then wiped her eyes with the back of her hand. I know you don't get it. You think I'm crazy? That's because you've never seen it. I swallowed. Kate, come on, just put the knife down. Kate shook her head and turned to me again. We have to make this right. I took a tentative step toward her, watching her hands intently. Making yourself bleed isn't going to fix things. She shook her head again, more persistently. I know she murmured. It has to be you. I froze again, afraid to get any closer. Kay, you're freaking me out. You want to hurt me now? No, she shouted. I don't want to hurt you. I want to protect you. And I thought maybe if I did it myself, you'd be safe. But I just feel it in my gut that it's not true. You were the one who screwed up. It has to be your blood. Whoa, hold on, I said backing up. She gripped the knife harder and took a step toward me. Matt, I know you don't believe me, but I have to do it, Kate said. Please don't fight me on this. I don't want to see those things happen to you. At that point, I had no clue how to react. Despite what she was saying, she sounded like my usual rational sister, only more tearful. I just couldn't reconcile the fact that she thought that cutting me would stop some evil witches from retaliating against us. What things? I asked, almost afraid to find out, had she seen something happen in that isolated town. Trauma can do things to a person's psyche, make them believe things they wouldn't have otherwise. I think they call it a coping mechanism, trying to make sense of the unfathomable. Kate's eyes locked with mine desperation in her gaze. They don't have bodies of their own, she said, the hysteria fading into a rueful calm. They have to gestate in a chosen vessel. If you don't fix what you did, she could pick you to be her vessel, or worse. Kate, let's just go, I said. Let's go into the city and get a motel, and then we don't have to worry about Malvadas or curses or any of that stuff. It doesn't matter, she said, holding up the knife. They'll find you wherever you go. It's too late. You only have one option. She reached out and grabbed my wrist with more strength than I thought she could muster. Kate, stop it. I said this pulling back. All you had to do was put out flowers, Matt. She snapped. It wasn't hard, but you couldn't even do that much. And now I have to spill your blood. I clenched my jaw at the accusation and ripped my wrist from her grasp. Now I was getting mad. I'd indulged her up to that point, but she was being ridiculous. I wasn't risking getting tetanus over some backwoods superstition. Enough, Kate. You're acting crazy. I don't expect to change your mind, she said, but you need to do this for me. She stared at me, bristling at my stunned silence. You need to do this for me, Matt. Give me your arm. Why are you doing this? Since when do you let folklore control your life? That's not the sister I know. Well, you won't have a sister at all if you don't give me your fucking arm. The room fell silent again. Though she didn't move away, I could see a hint of regret on Kate's face, realizing what she'd said in fear and anger. My eyes burned and blurred my vision. What are you saying? You would seriously cut me off because of this shit? I asked this through gritted teeth. Kate wouldn't look at me now. Rage bubbled up inside me. Fine, I snapped. You have to fucking cut me for your bullshit superstitions, do it. Apparently, that's more than... Kate grabbed my wrist again. And before I could finish my sentence, she'd swipe the knife over my arm, leaving a shallow but painful wound just below my wrist. Holy fuck, Kate. I cried, gripping my arm and doubling over. You fucking cut me. I can't believe you fucking did it. I'm sorry. She said, even as she grabbed the saucer and held it below my dripping gash, blood poured onto the plate, spilling from between my fingers, until she set the saucer on the counter and got me a rag. "'Put pressure on it,' she said, her tone low and defeated, which was surprising, considering she'd gotten what she'd wanted at my expense. "'What the fuck, Kate?' I said this, my voice much softer now, tear-choked. She turned and left the room, heading into the backyard." where I assumed she'd be picking wildflowers. I stayed where I was for a long while, pressing down on the cut and breathing through the agony until Kate finished binding the flowers and helped me bandage my arm up. From that point on, a weighted silence hung between us. Kate seemed back to her old self, maybe just relieved. I couldn't bring myself to face her though, still feeling betrayed. Once more, I considered trying to get her to go to the ER, but I was afraid she might attack me again. Whatever was going on with her, I wasn't equipped to handle it. When Kate finally spoke to me, it was to tell me that she was staying with a friend tonight. She felt we both needed some space from one another. I was grateful for that much, as I wasn't particularly enjoying her company at the moment. Kate left without saying goodbye and I spent the rest of the evening watching TV and fiddling around on my laptop. I couldn't get the things that Kate had said, had done, out of my head, and I briefly considered going out to the bargain to drown my sorrows. However, considering how getting wasted had caused the conflict in the first place, I decided not to press my luck. My anger toward Kate slowly faded back to concern. I didn't know how we were going to handle this. Was there any coming back from that kind of insane fight? I headed to the kitchen for some water, and as I passed the living room window, I noticed someone standing across the street, not moving. I confess, my initial reaction was akin to emotionally wetting my pants, and a choked, involuntary sound escaped me like I'd been punched in the gut. But once my stomach stopped doing somersaults, I carefully approached the glass, peering out into the night. The street lamps were just bright enough for me to make out an old woman, dressed all in black. I could only see her profile from my angle, but she was fairly distinct in her dress. There were heavy rings and bracelets on her arms and hands, a series of chains dangling from her neck. Her frock was so long that it dragged on the ground, and she wore a scarf over her hair, mostly hiding her features. However, when she turned back, I could clearly see her red, leathery face. Ah, the Maldadas have arrived. I said to myself, chuckling darkly. Part of me wanted to go out and confront the woman, as if it were her fault that my sister was losing it. Instead, I watched from the living room window as she loitered across the way. She hovered around the stoop for a while, looking back and forth before she pulled something from her pocket. A gift, most likely, confirmed when she picked up the bundle of wildflowers that sat on the Stoops' altar. Right then, I wished my sister could see it. I wanted to confront the thing she'd built up in her mind, so that she'd be able to put a face with her irrational fear. Merely a little old lady who made the swap, then wandered off into the night without looking back. Just the one house, apparently. I wondered if she'd return for the rest of the flowers, or if perhaps different folks were involved in the process. Either way, I turned off the living room light so as not to spook any other elderly woman who might come by. I was still bitter about the whole thing, but I really didn't want to have another huge blowout with Kate. I lazed about for the rest of the evening, appreciating the time to myself. It wasn't nice until somewhere around midnight, I noticed it had become unnaturally quiet. No insect chirps, no hum of civilization. It unnerved me a little, however, the peacefulness allowed me to relax and really get into a mystery novel I was reading, so I pushed it from my mind. I even started to drift off book in hand. A sudden crash cut through the eerie silence and had me halfway to my feet before I could even process it. My heart thudded in my chest from the scare, but after a moment, I caught my breath and tiptoed to the window. I looked back and forth, at first seeing nothing on the street to explain the noise, but before I turned away, I saw a figure near the end of the block. Beside it, a garbage can had been tipped over spewing trash along the road. Well, that explained it. Some guy had upended the bin, and the lack of crickets or sounds of traffic had made the fall especially loud. I watched the man for a moment as he continued swaying at the end of the street, a bloated silhouette. He was a large individual with a massive gut, bigger around than he was tall. Drunk off his ass, I assumed. He stood in the darkness like that for some time, rocking back and forth before he took his first unsteady steps onto the sidewalk. I noticed that most of the streetlights had flickered off. The moon was bright enough, though, to track the man as he lumbered from porch to porch, leaning over the altars. It looked as if he were taking the bouquets, but it didn't look like he was putting anything back. Damn, I murmured. A lot of people were going to be upset in the morning. I wondered what sort of bloodbath that would entail. I froze as the man neared my sister's place, slinking back so that I was mostly hidden by the curtains. He glanced around, his head jerking in a strange, unnatural manner. Then he waddled to the porch from before. The streetlight flickered on again just in time for me to see the man projectile vomit all over the stoop. I gagged and recoiled, until I noticed it wasn't the typical bile he was heaving. He was throwing up blood. Thick, heavy, seemingly endless amounts of blood. I put a hand over my mouth as I watched the guy stumble toward the door. He ran a bloody palm down the front of it, leaving a red streak in its wake. Then he reached for the handle and tugged. Once. Twice. A third time. Before he lifted both arms and began pounding on the door with all his might. He slammed his fists against the wood, frantic and enraged. It was at that moment that I realized I should be calling the cops. If nothing else, the guy needed medical care. I went to dial 911. Then it occurred to me that that might not be the emergency line in Panama. Blustered, I tried looking it up on my phone, when the guy outside drew my attention once more. He'd wandered away from the porch and was now convulsing in the street. The noises he was making were primal, like a feral animal, and I found that I couldn't move. I couldn't look away. I just watched as the man fell to his knees, heaving again, before throwing himself backward. Still kneeling, he twisted until his shoulders pressed into the asphalt, jutting his large abdomen out into the light of the moon. His body had bent so sharply, so abruptly, that it appeared as if he'd snapped in two. And that's when I saw the movement. It was easy to miss at first. But soon there was a distinct ripple beneath the man's skin. Something was shifting around in his gut. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. Trapped in my fear and morbid fascination, the ripple grew stronger, and the man's skin began to distort as something pushed out from the inside. It reminded me of a balloon being stretched out as wide as possible, thin enough to see through. Pressure as it was pulled to its limit. Then it snapped. A hand shot out of the man's gut, thrusting into the air like a strained rubber band released. The man continued to convulse as his belly tore from the other side, and another hand ripped out, wriggling its fingers in the cool night air. The hands flexed, then reached down to plunge their long nails into what skin was left. They tore the man open, freeing more of whatever was inside as a thick head of hair emerged then the beginning of a skinny, crooked body. Steam poured off of the man as the thing broke free, his entrails spilling about the street. As it stood pale and naked facing the other house, I could see it was a woman that had crawled out of him. Well, some semblance of a woman. More like what a woman would look like if designed by a person who'd never actually seen one before. She stood about three feet tall, hunched over, her wrinkled skin sagging, hanging from her bones. There was shockingly little viscera on her, and she seemed unbothered by the cold. The man was still twitching in his pile of guts as the woman, the Mulvada, approached the house. I couldn't see her face. I could only partly see what she was doing. I could, however, make out her deformed shape, her jagged movements as she pressed against the outer wall of the home, right beneath a sealed, covered window. She was resting her head on the wood, arms splayed as if embracing the structure, Had she made a sound, I wouldn't have heard it, as my heartbeat was pounding in my ears. Stricken, I watched. Watched as she stretched her arms out unnaturally long. Watched as she began to slide into the crack of the closed window. Watched as she disappeared entirely. The second she was out of sight, I was dialing. My Spanish is limited, but I did my best to describe what I was seeing. And the woman on the phone promised that the police would be there soon. I ran around the house, double-checking all the locks on the doors and windows. Not that it mattered. Did it? Not that anything could keep her out. I swallowed back the bile in my throat and locked myself in the bathroom. Then I did something I hadn't done since high school. Prayed. All I know is I fell asleep somehow, despite everything. I woke in a cramped, achy position, briefly disoriented over where I'd woken. When I came out of the bathroom, it was six o'clock in the morning. If the police had come earlier, I hadn't heard them. But I could see flashing lights outside the living room window now. I called my sister and she got home around an hour later. We didn't discuss what had happened between us. We didn't say much of anything. Instead, we joined the rubberneckers surrounding the area and watched as the police taped off the house and removed several body bags. Murder. A woman whispered in Spanish. She and her friend spoke too quickly for me to catch most of what they were saying, but I was able to gauge that the family in that home had been brutally slaughtered. As of yet... There wasn't enough information to guess as to why. Among the noisy crowd, I noticed the woman I'd seen the previous night, chattering excitedly with some other bystanders. A local busybody, I later learned. Not a witch at all, just a bad neighbor. Though I never did find out what she'd been doing on the porch that night. I left a day early, with no argument for my sister, despite everything. We still hugged and said, I love you. The flight home felt even longer than usual. In a sense, it was like I'd left some part of me back in that village, but I couldn't pinpoint what or why. I'm back in the States now, haven't talked to my sister much. For the most part, the nightmares have stopped, but sometimes I still hear scratching on my bedroom window. I guess I'm a little paranoid these days. Lately, it's hard to gauge what's in my head and what's really happening around me. I just keep questioning my own memory of events. Was it some sort of temporary psychosis? Did I hallucinate the things I saw? Or did I really witness that scene from hell? Did I really see without a doubt that all of my fears could be true? I try not to think about it anymore. I spend much of my day just pretending like it never happened. Of course, I do keep a large roll of red ribbon in my desk now. I know the equinox has passed, but I still leave flowers on my porch every night. Just in case...
2: I hope you enjoyed Wrapped in Ribbon as written by Queen of the Moths and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 42, Duchess Dark. Up next, we've got another tale for you. This one courtesy of Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 7, Luis Bermudez, who both wrote and performed it. In it, a man is forced to make some very difficult decisions when confronted with the reality that an apocalypse is on his doorstep and the end is nigh, But when the time comes, will they do what's asked of him, right or wrong? Stick around and find out. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, HelloFresh. As I mentioned at the top of the show, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit delivery service that delivers mouth-watering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients right to your door each and every month. HelloFresh's purpose to help make cooking at home fun, easy, and affordable. With the amazing offer they have for those of you listening in tonight, there's no better time to give HelloFresh a try. In these past few months, The crew here at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights had a chance to try out the service, and I've got to tell you, we were impressed. After signing up, our director Craig, who's got a family of five, including three boys of his own, returned home to find his very first HelloFresh box on his doorstep, with not one, but three full meals ready to prepare in a box complete with ice packs to keep everything in pristine condition. Even after making the trip all the way from New York to his home in Wisconsin, and HelloFresh didn't skimp. The meals had everything needed to make the meals that same day, with the exception of basics everyone's got, such as salt and pepper and a stick of butter. It couldn't have gotten any easier to make a home-cooked meal that tasted like something out of a gourmet restaurant. And that's what's so great about HelloFresh. It's restaurant-quality, home-cooked. And made simple, whether you're an aspiring chef or don't think you could live without your microwave. The service makes it easy for anyone to conquer the kitchen with delicious, healthy recipes that are easy to follow. And what makes HelloFresh so unique? Well, first of all, their recipes are delicious. With HelloFresh... You'll break out of your dinner rut in no time with their 22-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. Got a picky eater in your family? No worries. There's something for everyone on HelloFresh's incredible menu, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. Still not convinced? Well, what if I told you that HelloFresh is Has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit it's true take it from me this company has done all the legwork for you so you can rest easy knowing you'll get something delicious in each and every delivery hellofresh has gone out of their way to make sure kids and even the pickiest of eaters will approve of its recipes our director craig told us his kids loved every part of the meals from helping cook to how it tasted, and they even craved the leftovers. Now, since when does that happen with anything these days other than mac and cheese? As if that's not good enough already, HelloFresh helps you save time and reduce your stress effortlessly. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and prepping, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. The ingredients are fresh and pre-measured, and every meal comes with an easy-to-follow, six-step pictured recipe card, and it's all delivered each and every week straight to your door in a special insulated box, so even if it arrives while you're at work, you don't have to worry about a thing. Think about it. The average trip to the grocery store takes 41 minutes. According to the Time Institute Research Group, it's over 35 hours a year if you go once a week. And that is insane. And who'd want to do that when you could get everything you need brought to your door and spend more time with those you love instead? Or just get more quiet time to yourself after a long day? HelloFresh's meals call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup because the last thing you want to do after providing for your family and working hard all day is stare at an enormous pile of dishes. The entire service is designed to allow you to spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping and free up your time to do more of the things you love. And the dinners you'll end up with are fuss-free. HelloFresh made everything enjoyable and easy for Craig and his family. The whole process was a great activity that helped bring them together. The five of them decided together which of the three meals they got all at once, and they would make the first night, and they settled on HelloFresh's Italian meatloaf with roasted green beans and mashed potatoes, and it took less than 20 minutes to make the first meal. Not only that, but like I mentioned before, everything they needed was included except for a stick of butter and a pinch of salt and pepper. In the box, there was fresh basil right off the stem, shallots, garlic, and a generous pile of Yukon gold potatoes, alongside the best beef Craig says he's ever tasted, freshly picked beans, and even the milk and sour cream. Because of all this, Craig was able to spend less time worrying and more time around the table with the people he loves most. Enjoying a hot meal he made himself. What a way to feel accomplished after a long day at the office without needing to leave the comfort of your home to buy a dozen ingredients just for one meal. In the same box, Craig also received all the ingredients necessary to make pork carnitas tacos with pickled onion and Monterey Jack cheese. And my personal favorite, cheesy stuffed barbecue pork burgers, with charred pineapple and sweet potato fries. Man, I'm most watering just thinking about it. Sound too good to be true? It's not, and it gets better yet. HelloFresh is flexible and fits your lifestyle. With so many choices, you'll never run out of options. With their service, you can add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order, or throw in yummy sides and desserts, like garlic bread and cookie dough, or easily change your delivery days or food preferences, and skip a week whenever you need. The only thing HelloFresh doesn't do for you is cook the meal. But making a table of tasty eats doesn't get any better or easier than this. And I think once you give this service a try, you'll never go back to eating out again. Who wants overpriced chain restaurant cuisine or greasy burgers and fries when you can put something unique and delicious on your table three days a week with HelloFresh without needing to pile everyone into the car to go anywhere? In a busy world, HelloFresh just makes sense. So, get out of that recipe rut. Get the most meal for your moolah with HelloFresh. To show their appreciation and to make it easy for you to sign up now, HelloFresh is offering our listeners a fantastic deal. Go to hellofresh.com/ctdn10 and use code CTDN10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Once again, go to hellofresh.com/ctdn10 and use code. CTDN10 to get 10 free meals including free shipping. Be sure to use that URL and promo code to let them know that Otis and the team at Chilling Tales for Dark Knight sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving HelloFresh a try this month. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help support this program. And that means a lot to us. Now that we've freed up your schedule by making it easy to make dinner, you've got some extra time to kill, so why not spend it with us? Listening in as we spin another terrifying tale? Up next, we move out of the kitchen, but not out of the fire, as we're transported to a dystopian future in which threats to the very survival of society itself force neighbors to make some very challenging decisions. As written and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number seven, Luis Bermudez, I present to you I Saved the World.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take
4: You have to listen to me. This isn't right. You can't do this. You can't let this happen. Okay. Hold on. You have to listen to me. This isn't right. You can't do this. You can't let this happen. Okay. Hold on. Let me try again. Something different this time, calmer. Explain what's happening. Okay. My name is Nick, and as of right now, I am the last person on Earth. They called them Quiet Rooms. After the wave came, the remaining cities across the globe pulled together to gather their remaining resources in highly defensible areas. They called them Hub Cities, and the wealthiest of society lived closest to the Hub, and thus had their pick of the Earth's remaining resources. This, of course, did not last long. Ten years of feeding the lower southern United States nothing but rice and potatoes saw an end to the class system in messy fashion. After the collapse of society, there was a great ravaging, and for a while it looked like we would eat ourselves to death, or worse, cannibalize each other. But then, under new leadership, we began consolidating. From their perspective, not all mouths were worth the food they would eat. It started with prisons. First death row and the mentally insane. And then to those serving life and not long after committing a crime worthy of jail time all but assured your consolidation. And this is when the quiet rooms came in. No one knows when the law was passed or who made the final decision, but suddenly underground facilities began to crop up in all major cities and in every little town, and after several years of quiet construction, small garage-sized buildings began to crop up wherever the construction had ended, and some families received enlistment papers. The necessary draft, they called it. We always joked later and called it what it really was, a necessary evil. That was until my papers came and I became one of the delivery men. Our job was simple, i wait for orders to arrive and retrieve someone identified for scheduled consolidation and take them to a quiet room. To resist these orders and the lawful determination of the remaining world's courts was a jailable sentence, leading ultimately to immediate consolidation. The first week was the worst. Every morning, I put on my uniform, I holstered my regulation bolas and I patrolled the borders of our small town until I was relieved from post. The times always changed, the hours were never consistent, and I spent every waking minute wondering, praying, hoping that I wouldn't get the call. And I didn't. For a long time. I continued to enjoy the hefty government check I received each month, enjoyed the ability to purchase groceries for my family without worry of budgeting, Enjoyed the ability to get my daughter new clothes. I enjoyed the peace it instilled in me. And soon, I began to become complacent and even trusting of my government. I began to trust that the only people being taken were those who truly did not deserve to stay. They had gone months without ever making me respond to a single order for retrieval. Maybe it would never come. And if it did, well, maybe it was for good reason. And then the day came when I received my first call. My first order for retrieval. I went to a home, one I didn't recognize and perhaps stupidly knocked on the door. People began to pour out of their homes at the sight of me, not approaching but watching in terror, disgust and oddly enough curiosity. No one knew what to expect. None of us had ever witnessed this happen before myself included and then the door opened and I saw my package an older man hard in the face with an intense stare and a jagged set of knuckles wrapped around the side of his entryway steadying himself up to look at me he was old but strong and he looked ready poised to strike but he didn't he just looked at me and said well I suppose that's it then I'm to go I swallowed the little amount of courage I had available in my mouth and tried to moisten my vocal cords to say in what I had hoped would be a determined voice. "Eh, Yes, unfortunately, I believe you are to come with me immediately, sir. I stammered out at the end, still feeling like some respect should be present at the least. I watched his face as he processed the information I had just laid at his feet and then glanced out towards the people surrounding us. He and I both realized in that moment, I think, that no one was willing to stop this. They all stood by and watched. They knew what I was here to do, that this was necessary, and the remaining courts had their reasons. I held my hand out and directed the man to come outside of his home, and he followed suit, after a brief moment of hesitation. He didn't bother to look behind him and even close his door as he walked side by side with me down the steps of his porch. We walked in silence for some time, through throngs of people, none of them doing anything to stop me or him. Parents running into their homes with their children, others letting them watch, pointing as they told their children what their fates could be, if they didn't behave and wash behind their ears like Mommy said. And I, in a strange way, felt proud. Proud of the example I was setting, horrified, surely, still hopeful that there was a reason this man did not deserve to live. And I writhed in those emotions for the duration of our walk to the quiet room until finally we arrived at the small building just on the outside of town. The old man paused then. Now, fear was clearly present in his mind. He looked at me in desperation and said, almost pleading, Why me? What did I do? I was perplexed. I assumed he would know or at the very least have some idea. When he saw that I didn't, he looked horribly sad and said, I just don't get it. I know my medications, they're expensive, but I always pay for them. I need them to help me sleep, the things I've done for this country, the people I hurt in other parts of the world all in the name of my home. I never enjoyed them. They stayed with me, even when everyone else left me. So why? Why me? Why not you? Or anyone else? What did I do? He yelled, and people began to walk over to get a better look. The old man was riling them up, getting them excited as he began to lose control of his composure. He began to look out at them as he spoke now, saying, ''You can't let this happen. This isn't right. Who decides who goes?'' I started to shake. I knew what was about to happen. I knew what was coming if I didn't stop him from inciting riot. I knew what awaited everyone in this town if they tried to fight the system put in place. And to my family. Stop resisting, or I will be forced to use... Uh, Force, I stammered out. At this, the old man did not back away, but instead took a step closer before I screamed. Are you really going to be this selfish? Can you really not see how dangerous this is for everyone here? What do you think happens to them if you don't go? Or what might happen to me and my family if I don't deliver you? Did you ever think that maybe you need to go so the rest of us can stay? And at that, everyone stopped, including the old man. And when he saw that he had lost them, he looked down in a deep, hollow sadness and turned again towards the doors of the quiet room. We walked slowly together to the doors, where I scanned my ID and he, his, until the doors opened and revealed a small, completely bare chamber with no windows, doors, or otherwise other defining features. A negative space filled with darkness and blank walls and floors. The old man looked at me, and I, him. We were both... Terrified. Then he began to walk forward, almost at his own surprise. He stopped in the center of the small chamber and just stared back at me. Nothing happened. As we stared at each other, a hole didn't open up into the bottomless pit of the earth. Gas didn't begin to flood the chamber. Nothing. Until finally, I began to close the door. The old man's eyes widened. But he did not stop me, instead he stood, watching me as I closed the door. The last thing I remember seeing was his one eye staring back at me in the darkness. One steely grey eye. And then the doors were closed, and I went home. Nothing else. No more pomp and circumstance. The checks kept coming, and eventually started getting larger. And I kept patrolling. People seemed at ease, suddenly as if a weight had been lifted. Someone had been chosen. No one else need worry any longer, and I... I was their hero. The one who protected them from the old man's fate. And then the second call came. And it was like the first time all over again, everyone held their breath as I made my way to my package's address. When I knocked on the door this time, there was an audible yell from the inside as a woman cried out in surprise and terror, likely. And then the door opened to a man in his thirties like me, with a young boy next to him. The sound of his wife crying behind him in the living room, echoing into the entryway. He looked at me up and down as if to ask me what I was doing there. But then he said, Who? Who are you here for? And I thought for a moment. Nothing I received ever made it clear that I was supposed to be picking up one person or another. Just the address. I looked at him as I came to that realization, and he came to it with me. He grabbed a suitcase next to the doorway and called his wife over, tasseling his son's hair with a smile on his face. Come along, my love. We have a trip to go on. Did you prepare your bag like we talked about? He said to his wife, from over his shoulder. I heard her choke, but then come around the corner putting her hair behind her ears as she openly wept holding a small case in her right hand. They walked out together, holding their son's hand who looked near catatonic. He had no clue what was happening, or perhaps knew exactly what was coming but wasn't able in his youth to process it. We walked together to the quiet room with no interruptions like before. We scanned our IDs, and the doors opened and inside, where I expected to see bones, or some rotten, bloated carcass with some foul creature lurched over it was nothing. The same emptiness as before, just an empty room. The family looked at each other confused and possibly relieved, and then slowly, with the husband leading the way, nearly dragging his wife in with him, stepped into the room and began to hold her in his arms, along with his son, as he stared out at me. And again, I closed the door and remembered the look of his face as the door shut. And all was quiet once more. This was the procedure for a long time. We would go a few months of quiet, peaceful rumination, counting our blessings and appreciating the time we had with our families. I began to feel a sense of real purpose in my duty as a delivery man. I was helping people live fulfilled lives, making them safe from the dangers of those that are hiding in the shadows waiting to be consolidated. And he was there to get the job done and provide that sense of security to his family and the people of his town. He was its protector and it was his to protect. And soon the man began to receive more calls and he would always respond in the dead of the night or at the crack of dawn. And soon he began to deliver his packages to their quiet rooms, twice a day, every day for weeks. And soon he began to notice the way the town was flourishing. The remaining people now left behind, small in number though they were, lead extravagant and lavish lives. He himself had enough food in his fridge to have a barbecue every day for the next month. Homes began to become larger taking up the empty space where their neighbors had once been. A source of stable income became a pastime instead of a necessity, most people having enough in their savings to live like this for the rest of their days. And each day, after it began to slow down significantly, everyone else, much like Nick, began to hope that the following day would see someone else leaving. He could see it in their eyes every day he did his patrols. They would watch him and silently urge him to get rid of someone, anyone. To just go and knock on someone's door and get rid of them. Consolidate them so that those left could have more. He saw it. He knew it. But Nick was a man of principle. He was not a vigilante handing out justice wherever he saw fit. He was a man of law and order. And he would await his orders. And soon, As he knew it would, they began to come in. His neighbors dwindled down slowly to ten, and then in one evening to seven, and a month later down to three, until one day almost without the hero realizing he and his neighbor were the only ones left. And he smiled and waited, knowing one day the order would come, that he need not rush But then one season came, and so did the other, and the order never came. And the hero waited, but still no call came. No order was given, and each day his neighbor began to look at him in hatred. The hero began to fear for his life, for the safety of his property and his family. He would watch his neighbor each night, make it known that he was in his sight, that he would not be caught unaware. But after the fourth night of not sleeping, the hero realized he needed to do something. Something had to give. He made the call. He walked to his neighbor's home. He knocked on the door. And he looked him in the eye and said it was his time to be delivered. The neighbor looked at the hero. His eyes were filled with anger streaming, with tears, his face turned down into a hideous grimace. The hero hated him, and so he demanded that he go with him to be delivered, and the neighbor complied with the orders given to him. They walked together, the neighbor seething in the hero's shadow, until they arrived at the quiet room where the hero once again opened the doors for what would be his final delivery. The neighbor looked at the hero, looked behind himself back at the city and said, Is this... right? The hero said nothing. He knew. The neighbor already knew the answer. And when he didn't respond, the neighbor stepped inside, and the hero closed the doors. It was quiet. And every day the hero would wake and do his patrols. His family, distant and fearful, and despite knowing... There was no one else to deliver. The hero always waited for another call to come. Waited for them to send him somewhere far away in some other part of the world where others needed delivering. He knew one day the call would come as it always had before. And right he was. But only partially. Because while he did get the call, the address of the family that he was to have delivered was that of his own. He slowly made his way down the stairs, looked his wife in the eye. He had forgotten her name, but she cried now, cried as she realized that he was in his uniform, his bowlass in his hands, and his children sit at the table crying as well. He hadn't realized how grown they had become, or for that matter, Remembered, there were in fact two of them. His wife began to weep and beg. She fell to her knees and thrashed her fists against the floor as she asked the hero for what she believed was mercy. But the only mercy the hero believed in now is the mercy granted by those who were ordered to be consolidated so that the rest of the world could go on living peacefully. And this was the final test. A test to show he was worthy of putting the world before his own happiness, to prove what he always knew, that he was a hero. And he used this fact to give him strength as he bound his family together, using his bowless, and dragged them out to the quiet room, where he would complete his duty. Weeping now, the hero pulled his family as they thrashed and cried out against the restraints that bound their arms and legs together into the lightless chamber they called out to him called him a name he did not remember but he had to push them out he knew what he was doing was right no matter how much it hurt and with what was left of his strength he pushed and with a solid effort sealed the doors in front of him and screamed out in agony as he lost everything he loved he wept for a long time until finally he began to come to terms with his sacrifice. He stood up and began to walk away from the quiet room to await his next orders, when suddenly there was a thrum beneath his feet, and he turned to look behind him, and what he saw confused and rattled him behind the quiet room. The ground had split open and began to reveal a strange obsidian-like material, protruding out from broken earth. The shape of it was strangely uniform, and it was accompanied by a loud whining sound as the ground beneath my feet began to rumble even more violently. And then slowly, at first, but then rapidly, the quiet room began to rise. I watched in awe as a structure began to reveal itself hidden deep beneath the earth and rise high above my head height before revealing clear glass, and inside I couldn't believe what I was seeing. In a brightly lit white room, I could see my family. They were looking at me with hatred in their eyes, just like the people I had delivered, and they were standing in a large living space with verdant and lush greenery surrounding every corner. Like a localized terrarium. But then it wasn't just them. It was others, too, people I had delivered, I had sent to be consolidated. And they all looked at me with hatred, and slowly I began to realize the structure was continuing to rise. Now, out of the ground and into the air. I looked in terror as I began to understand that I was being left behind. And then I saw him, the old man, his steely gray eyes looking back at me, and I flew into a rage. I screamed as the ship began to lift into the air, taking the remaining survivors of this planet to some other distant, inhabitable planet that could support them. I did not scream as I watched in silence as other ships began to lift into the skyline from towns and cities hundreds of miles away from me as what remained of humanity fled the dying world that they had abandoned me in. And then I sat in silence until no more lights were visible from my meager view of the skyline. And I sat still, very still, I'm the hero. I saved the world.
2: I hope you enjoyed I Saved the World as written and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 7, Luis Bermudez. Up next, we've got one final terrifying tome for you as written by Jeff Sturdivant and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number two, Paul J. McSorley. In it, we'll experience the banality of evil in an unexpected way. Will a handful of stand-up comedians, having uncovered a demonic plan of deadly proportions, be able to stop it before it's too late? Or will their efforts be in vain, courtesy of a tough crowd, Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you... He's killing up there.
3: One. So, I'm in the cosmetics aisle, right? And I'm standing there reading this bottle of lotion. Not tested on animals, it says. And I'm thinking, really? Really? Like who the hell's rubbing lotion on animals? Anyone a modest amount of laughter from the audience about as much as you could expect from twelve drunk New Yorkers at one in the morning on a Thursday night. Nick paced the stage, the practised, dumbfounded expression on his face, his free hands supine, his shoulders up around his ears. Laughter stops one, two, three. I mean, is that seriously the way you want to be testing your new body lotion? To rub it on a bunny? Well, the bunny doesn't seem to mind, so I guess I won't either. I mean, is this really what people think is going on? A little less laughter this time. Polite at best. Not going well. Not bombing, but far from killing. Too wordy. Gotta cut it down a bit. Here comes the wordy-ass punchline. And God help you view trip, Nick. Smooth and steady. One, two, three. I mean, I picture some top-secret facility 12 floors underground, right? Armed guards, razor wire, security cameras. And inside, there's this mad scientist rubbing Lubriderm on a turtle. This is what everyone's worried about? Polite laughter. Not enough. Too short, need an extra beat before the tag. One, two, three. Funny little face, shrug shoulders, sigh. Here goes. I mean, I'd love to buy this gold bond, but I have it on good authority that they rubbed this shit on a til on a tilapia. Fuck. Tripped on the last goddamn word. Ruined the whole joke. Ruined the whole act. Maybe ruined his whole career for all he knew. One lady laughed, but it was clearly an act of kindness. Thanks, Mom, Nick said. And that one got the best laugh of the whole set. For an encore, he ought to pull out a gun and blow his brains out. That'd get him a standing goddamn ovation. You guys have been great, he said. Thank you. He put the microphone back in the stand and walked off stage to the bare minimum of appreciation. He took the long way around the little audience and went to sit at the bar. Danny uncapped a Heineken and touched the cold bottle to the back of his neck. "'Ow,' he said. "'You're sweating, Nicky?' "'Yeah, you'd be too,' Nick said. "'How hard is it to say tilapia? Freakin' tilapia!' It's not like I chose Patagonian toothfish. Danny laughed. It was the best laugh of the night. She set the beer down in front of him. Thanks, Nick said. I'm about to kill the fryer for the night. Want anything? No, thanks. Just ate my balls. You're funny as hell, Nick. Don't sweat it. What's another funny-sounding fish, Danny? Carp? Halibut? Gefilte? Danny said, winking. Christ, you're funnier than I am, Nick said. Some local greenie was up on stage doing his little Attel rip-off routine. Sadly, it was the same laughs as Nick had. You know this hack? Nick asked. Ari Green, Danny said. Short for Greenbaum, I think. Short for Greenbaum? What, with a name like Ari? You're worried about sounding too Jewish? Danny laughed. He's all right, she said. Really nice guy. It was late, but Nick decided the only way to celebrate his monumental bomb of a set was to drink about seven or eight beers and watch as many people bomb after him as possible. With luck, he'd get drunk enough to forget the whole thing ever happened. Ari finished his set to a smattering of polite applause and, like Nick, took the long way back to the bar. He nodded at Nick and took a seat. How you doing? Ari said. About the same as you, I suppose. I hear that. Danny around? She's closing up the kitchen. Should be back any minute. Ari nodded. What a crowd, huh? These people ought to be at an Inya concert. Nick chuckled. I'd love to blame them for my own set, but I straight up shit myself. Nah, man. Ari said. These bozos are ready for bed. That joke is killer. I've always loved that joke. Have you been here before? I didn't recognize you. I saw you at the riot room with some friends. Huh, cool, man. That's a nice room. Totally. Haven't been on stage there or anything. How long you been at this? Nick asked. Six months. You? Five years this May. Ari nodded. Hey, You sure Danny isn't taking a shit or something? How long does it take to get a beer around here? They keep all the beer in the back. Don't ask me why. If this was my place, I'd have three taps. Here, here, and here. Guinness, Bud, and Bud Light. The MC came up next with an artificial enthusiasm he hoped might wake up the audience. We've got a special treat for all you brave enough to be out past your bedtimes on a school night. Please welcome, making his comedy debut this very night at the mic stand, the magnificent Rodney Walters. Rodney Walters, everyone. He hung up the microphone and clapped enthusiastically, effectively doubling the amount of applause in the room. You heard of this guy before? Ari asked. Nick shook his head. With a name like that, I'd sure as hell remember if I did. Need anything, boys? Hi, Ari. It was Danny. Thank the gods, Ari said. Get me drunk, please. Another for you too, Nicky? Yes, ma'am. The magnificent Rodney Walters was making his way to the stage, a trundling old man in a ratty faded suit. He got to the edge of the stage and put one foot on the first step, then the second step. Then he was on stage facing the audience. Nick was sure he had never seen him. If he had, he'd have recognized the big mole on the left side of his nose. I just flew in from the local rub-and-tug, and and boy are Miss Ling's arms tired. Oh God, Nick said, one of these guys. Time to go take a leak. Yeah, I'm with you. There wasn't a laugh to be had on the way to the bathroom. Rodney Walter's magnificence consisted completely of hacky one-liners, most of which you could hear variations of around any water cooler or barbershop full of dullards. It was guys like this who made people think stand-up was easy, that comedians were merely the class clown dropouts without the gumption to put in a full day's work, guys like this who made a mockery of the craft and a shit sculpture of the art. Thanks a ton, Rodney, for your truly magnificent contribution to comedy. This one's for Rodney, Nick said, taking a leak. He could still hear the cadence of his shitty one-liners through the bathroom door, but mercifully... You couldn't make out the words. At least someone's bombing worse than we did, said Ari. Hey, so how long ago did you get passed at the riot room? Couple of years ago, Nick said. You ever meet the owner? Polly? Nah, not yet. Still waiting for someone to introduce me to... They paused, both simultaneously cocking an ear to the door. Mr. Magnificent had just gotten his first laugh of the evening. A pretty good one, too, considering he had cooled the audience down to the temperature of liquid nitrogen. Must have dropped his big closer, Ari said. Probably got it out of a dirty joke's coffee table book, Nick said. No doubt they were both right, but holy hell, was that dead-ass crowd enjoying it. They were still enjoying it. It must have been eight, ten seconds already, and the knuckleheads were still laughing. In fact. The laughter was getting louder. He's killing up there, Ari said. What the hell did he pull out of his ass? They hurried to the sinks and half-heartedly rinsed their hands. Out in the room, the stage was empty. What, had the audience been that thrilled to see the guy leave? Nick looked to the front door just in time to see the guy's ass disappear out in the street. That was him all right, that ratty suit and geriatric shamble. But the audience, the audience was still laughing. Forget laughing, they were cracking the fuck up, knee slapping, rolling back, falling on their asses laughing. Ari and Nick looked at each other. What the hell happened here? Ari said, I've never got a laugh like that in my life. Just then, Alex, the MC, came stumbling towards them from the back of the club, one hand on his belly and the other one landing on his knee as he stopped in front of them to bend over, laughing. When he came back up to face them, he had tears in his eyes. Bulbous veins protruded from his forehead and the sides of his neck. His face was purple in the neon lights from the bar. Oh my god, Alex wheezed. Did you hear that guy's closer? We were taking a leak, Nick said. Oh, my God, Alex said. Holy shit, that has to have been the funniest fucking joke I've ever... Alex doubled over, half laughing, half coughing. What'd he say? Ari asked. Fuck, did we pick the wrong time to take a piss? Tell us the joke, Nick said. But Alex was practically debilitated with laughter. The whole club was in a goddamn uproar. The audience was falling out of their chairs, some of them literally rolling on the floor. R-O-F-L, Nick thought. Typed a million times a day. Never happened once in the history of mankind. Well, so much for the joke he was working on. It was happening right before his eyes. He and Ari met eyes again. What could that guy have said to cause such a cataclysm? He goes... He says, it was Alex trying desperately to catch his breath. It was hopeless. He threw his head back and howled with laughter. All at once, it was more disconcerting than amusing. It had gone on too long. No joke could possibly be that funny. He goes, goes. The veins in Alex's neck bulged so obscenely, they seemed to fold in on themselves. His face was a deepening purple his expression turned from hilarity to sudden horror. Alex, chill out, man. A geyser of fluid erupted from Alex's mouth. Holy shit, Ari said, narrowly escaping the splash. Another splash, then another, and another. Alex stood agape with his eyes rolling back in his head. Only then did Nick realize that the rhythmic bursts of vomit were not vomit at all, but blood. Alex fell backwards, his head hitting the floor with a final weakening spout. Dude, said Ari, what the hell is going on? I think we need to get out of here, Nick said. He turned to the bar. Danny had just come out of the back, was standing dumbfounded behind the bar holding two bottles of beer. When her eyes found Alex, his mouth weakly erupting blood on the floor, she dropped both bottles. The soundtrack to it all? was uproarious laughter. Nick hurried to the bar and took Danny by the elbow. Don't ask, he said. Let's get out of here. As the three of them went for the door, a hysterical audience member collapsed, tipping over a table and landing face first on the floor. He didn't move. Nick, Danny said, pointing at the man on the floor. Come on, Nick said. We got to get the cops." There was no helping these people at this point. Plus, he had a serious case of the creeps. 2. The police were no closer to the answers they were looking for by the time they let Nick, Ari, and Danny back onto the street. It was 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and they were exhausted and hungry. All the cops had given them to eat were the same bologna sandwiches reserved for the guests in the drunk tank and lockup. Nick didn't blame the cops for being suspicious. It was tough to explain. The cops arrive on scene at 1:35 a.m. Two comics and one bartender unharmed. Inside, 13 dead. A bloodbath. Alex had only been the first to go. Esophageal varices. He heard one of the cops mention a burst blood vessel in the throat, attributed to the club owner's alcoholism. But the jury was out on everyone else. There was no logical explanation for it. People just don't laugh themselves to death. There was no way the cops were going to buy that line, so neither Nick, Ari, or Danny even suggested it during the extensive bouts of questioning. Last they heard once the cops admitted defeat, they meant to investigate the matter as a possible gas leak. Maybe the lack of oxygen left everyone giddy, and they asphyxiated in the throes of hysteria. Nick and Ari, breathing the relatively fresh air in the bathroom, and Danny, safe from the fumes in the kitchen, survived. Could this really be possible? Admittedly, it made more sense than some weirdo coming on stage and cracking a joke so funny it killed everyone. The three of them were too tired and hungry to discuss it by the time they got out of the precinct. Ari bid them farewell, and Nick saw Danny to a taxi and sent her on her way. The story in the paper hardly did it justice. No big headline, no sensationalism suggesting a chemical attack. Just, tragic gas leak kills 13. It seemed like the cops and the news alike just wanted to put a button on it and put it behind them. Case closed. But Nick couldn't put it out of his mind. That creepy comic. What did he call himself? The Magnificent Rodney Walters. Could he really have killed the audience? What the hell had he said or done before the crowd lost their shit like that? The phone rang that Sunday morning, shaking Nick from a pleasant dream and instantly pissing him off. He had been doing sets until 3am and was planning to sleep until noon at the very least. So much for that. Hello? Nick, it's Ari. From the other night? It's nine in the morning, dude. How'd you get my number? Danny had it. Dude, it happened again. You see the paper? Nick sat up suddenly. You're kidding me. There's no way this thing was a gas leak. It's that guy. Rodney Walters or whatever. Ten people dead, dude. Where? Slappy's. In Brooklyn? That's the one. It's closed now. To investigate the gas leak. But there was no fucking gas leak. It was that guy. It must have been. Did they mention the guy? No, nothing. There's no way to find out either. Everyone died. It was that joke, dude. They heard the joke. Nick took a deep breath. God, he was tired. Listen, man, I don't know how to explain this either, but there's no way this actually happened the way it looks. You can't laugh yourself to death. It's just not possible. Listen, man, I know you were out working last night. I wouldn't have called you at nine in the morning if I didn't have to. But ever since that night, I've been obsessed with this. I haven't done a set since Thursday. Do you have a point here, or can I go back to sleep? Of course I have a point, dude. Listen, meet me at Lucky's at noon. I have someone you have to meet. Really important, okay? I gotta sleep, man. Please, Nick. You have to trust me. Again, I wouldn't have bothered you if I... All right, all right. I'll be there. Perfect. Lucky's at noon. I'll see you then. Nick hung up and set an alarm for 11.15 a.m. He lay back down and closed his eyes. But when he did, all he could see was that creepy comic. Rodney Walters. No more sleep was forthcoming. Thanks, Ari. 3. Lucky's Pizzeria, 12 p.m. When Nick walked in, he immediately saw Ari and some other guys sitting at a table in the back. He grabbed two slices and a soda and made his way back to join them. They had already eaten. Nick, thanks for coming. And again, sorry for waking you up. Again? I don't recall you apologizing the first time. Nice to meet you, Nick, said the man, hand extended. I'm John. He's a pastor's assistant at Bible Baptist Church, Ari said. And a comic, would you believe it? No kidding, Nick said. They shook hands. So I take it you don't work, Blue? He's filthy as hell, Ari said. Don't let the cross fool you. Hey, John said. I'm only a past his assistant. Fair enough, Nick said with a chuckle. So what's the big emergency here? Not to downplay what happened or anything. He folded a slice and took a big bite. So we've been talking ever since the thing happened. I was super freaked out. He's kind of my spiritual advisor, you know? spiritual advisor? Aren't you Jewish? Hey now, John said. Jesus was too, remember? Touche, said Nick. Anyway, Ari went on, John is always suspicious of devilish shit going on, so when I told him about what we saw, he was all over it. It's been written, John said with sudden authority, that Satan, in all his craftiness and deceit, is constantly looking for ways to wreak havoc on earth. And if this is what it sounds like, it can only be the work of the devil. The devil, dude, Ari said. It's been written, said Nick. That's a pretty vague way to attribute something to the supernatural. Specifically, John went on, in the ancient grimoires that preceded Jesus himself, That there exists a joke so funny that all those who hear it will die of laughter. Ancient Grimoires, dude, Ari said. Obviously, John continued, the joke itself has never been transcribed. If it were, it would be the single most dangerous document to ever exist. All of mankind could be destroyed. Well, not really, said Nick. If you read it, you'd die, right? kind of keeps you from spreading it, for lack of a better word. It has too been written that simply reading the joke will not kill the individual, but instead arms said individual with the joke's destructive power. The person needs only to tell the joke and all who hear it will die, including the teller of the joke him or herself. Just picture the destruction. The dead piled around water coolers, in locker rooms, in comedy clubs. Say someone uttered the joke over the radio or on television. It would only be a matter of time until the joke is transcribed to all the tongues of the world. Bodies piled in the streets. Vermin, pestilence, the pit of hell. Belching forth its infernal. All right, cool it, man, Ari said. We get the idea, believe me nick took another bite and sat chewing for a minute even if this was true he said that a joke like this could possibly exist some evil joke that killed all who heard it you mentioned the teller of the joke would also die correct because he heard himself tell it you mean precisely said john so that couldn't be what happened because the guy on stage when all this went down walked back off the stage and out the door. Both Ari and I saw him go, right, Ari? But there is an explanation for that, Ari said. He and John glanced knowingly at each other. The devil has many names, John said. Beelzebub, Lucifer, Damien, Satan, the Morning Star. Rodney Walters, Ari said. The magnificent Rodney Walters... Is the devil. 4. The more Nick thought about his conversation with Ari and John, the more he wished he had only had one slice instead of two. The heartburn was brutal. He had been pushing the idea of anything surreal out of his mind ever since the night in the police station. It just wasn't rational to think a joke was so funny it could kill you, even if there was such a joke. One that was so funny, you'd need a Surgeon General's warning on it. There's no way it would kill everyone who heard it. Maybe the odd heart patient, or yes, possibly even an alcoholic club owner with a varicose vein in his throat, but never everybody. Was it possible John's take on the situation was accurate? Had the pit of hell belched forth Rodney Walters? Nick picked up the phone and canceled his spots at the riot room. As tired as he was today, attempting comedy tonight was a certain bomb. Screw it, he said. He was dozing on the couch at around 5 p.m. when the local news brought up the comedy club tragedy in Brooklyn. Ten dead from suspected gas leak. The second such tragedy in a week. More regulation needed? It didn't go any further into it than that. What were a couple dozen deaths in a city of zillions... Peanuts, that's what. Worth little more than the ten bucks he'd get for your fifteen minute spot. No sooner than Nick closed his eyes did his cell phone ring again. He picked it up and looked at the number. It was Ari. Nick shook his head. They certainly had become fast friends, hadn't they? Hello? Nick, you got the TV on? Yeah, why? And why are you always calling me when I'm trying to sleep? Put on Channel 7, dude, quick! Nick grabbed the remote and hit seven. The Midtown Mania Comedy Festival was going on a week from today. The news was showing snippets from last year's festival. Big acts from around the country doing their best 15 minutes. Everyone selling t-shirts and CDs, taking pictures and signing autographs for the fans. Nick couldn't care less about it. The festival was huge, but guys on his level had no shot at all getting on stage at a show like that much less a guy like Ari. The whole thing was a self-celebrating big-shot fest. Maybe Nick would be in it one day, sure, but until that day, he was fully intent on resenting it. Why do you care? Nick asked, hoping to sneak in five minutes between Bill Burr and Dave Attell. You never heard about that big raffle? What big raffle? I try not to pay any attention to this shit. Look, man, look, right now. Nick looked at the TV. There he was, the magnificent Rodney Walters, this year's first guest spot raffle winner. The lucky comedian will have the chance to perform five minutes in front of a massive crowd of an expected 80,000 comedy fans. A chance in a lifetime for sure. We at Channel 7 News wish Rodney Walters a magnificent performance indeed. Nick's stomach tightened. The pizza was creeping up his throat again. "'I see,' he said. "'Dude, there's no way he could have won that contest without harnessing his infernal devil powers. There were like 50 zillion entries!' "'I can imagine,' Nick said. "'I mean, I know you aren't convinced or anything. I can totally understand. The whole thing sounds pretty crazy, but you gotta admit... Like, seriously, right? Devil powers, man!' Nick took a deep breath. There was so much to absorb today. He hadn't even the resources to digest two slices of pizza. Biases toward the non-supernatural aside, he had to admit. It did seem like the odd, unknown comedian literally killed that night at Alex's club. And it did appear that the exact same scenario had taken place at Slappy's in Brooklyn mere nights later. And it did seem pretty unlikely that the same completely unknown, utterly shitty comedian would win, let alone meet any necessary qualifications to enter, a massive contest to perform in front of 80,000 people along with the nation's biggest, most prestigious acts. Yeah. The biases aside, Nick agreed. It kind of seems that way, doesn't it? And you know what that means, don't you? He's telling the goddamn joke, Nick. Everybody's gonna be there. My sister's gonna be there. All her friends, too. Can you convince her not to go? Nick asked. Just in case all this is true, she wouldn't miss it for the world, Ari said. She'd never listen to me. And besides, this isn't only about her. There'll be 80,000 people there, Nick. What are we supposed to do? Let them die? Ah oh, jeez. The two Nick's were engaged in battle. The rational reasonable Nick and, well, the other Nick. Strange thing was, the other Nick was coming out on top. Hard as it may have been to believe, there was actually more evidence that the magnificent Rodney Walters was the devil seeking to commence hell on earth than there was to explain him as a shitty hack comic who got really lucky. Either way, Nick decided, Whether in the name of God or the spirit of comedy, the fucker needed to be stopped. 5. Sunday, day of the Midtown Mania Comedy Festival. A record turnout of 90,000 people packed into Central Park to watch their favorite headliners on stage. A pamphlet with the set list showed 18 comedians total. Halfway down the list, was the lucky contest winner, the magnificent Rodney Walters. The show was currently up to the 8th comic, Joey Diaz. Following him was scheduled Nick DiPolo. Then it would be time for Walters. If he had his way, Nick, Ari, and John knew the final nine would never make it on stage. You're absolutely sure, Ari? Nick asked. Trailer 10, he said. They're all in order. Makes sense, right? It makes sense, sure. I just wonder whether the security guy was talking out of his ass. He was telling the truth, John said. I have a nose for these things. Besides, Ari said, he wouldn't try to throw us off by sending us towards some big shots trailer. Unless Rogan's in that one, Nick said. They'd get a laugh out of watching him break our legs. God is on our side, John said. Certainly, he would never lead us astray. Nick almost chuckled at that, but seriously, what was there to chuckle at? If they were honestly here to confront the fallen angel of hell, it was pretty reasonable to believe that there was a God, and that in mind, he was pretty likely on their side. Fair enough, Nick said. With Joey Diaz captivating all in attendance, security guards included, The three comics walked with a cloak of divine invisibility to the row of trailers behind the huge stage. There was no security at all by Trailer 10. Stealing themselves, they approached the door. Know what I just realized? Ari said. I have no idea what the fuck we're supposed to do. Faith, John said. Have faith, ye of little faith. You really think that's all we need? Nick asked. Because... I'd feel a lot more comfortable with a machine gun or something. Oh, me too, man, John said. Don't get me wrong, I'd love a machine gun, but I'm only a past as assistant. Gotcha, Nick said. He didn't, but this was no place for an open ended question. With a mutual nod between them, Ari raised his fist and knocked on the door. Knock, knock, knock. A pause. Momentarily, they heard shuffling towards the door. It opened, and there he was, the Prince of Darkness, Rodney Walters. Yes, Satan asked. Get thee back, scourge of hell! John shot into the old man's midsection with an exasperated woof. Nick wasn't sure if it came out of the man or John. The two hit the floor, and Nick and Ari hurried inside, shutting the door behind them. What? What are you doing? Walters groaned. Sending you back to hell, said John. But something didn't seem right. If the old man really was Satan, would he really be panting on the floor right now? You'd think by now he would have morphed into his true form. Wings, goat horns, etc. Not that Nick was an expert by any stretch, but... Are you boys out of your minds? Walters snapped. Get off of me! "'I have to be on stage in fifteen minutes!' "'You don't fool me, bub, Beelzebub!' "'John, hold up,' Ari said. "'Maybe we got this wrong. "'He doesn't really seem so satanic right now.' "'He's the Prince of Lies,' John said. "'Just you wait. "'Any moment now, he'll be breathing hellfire. "'Only your hellfire cannot hurt me, Satan.' I wear the fireproof cloak of faith. I'm a pastor's assistant. Okay, the exasperated old man said. Okay, you win. You win. Just please let me up. Never. John wrapped his hands around the old man's neck and began to squeeze. The man let out an exasperated fart. Nick and Ari looked at each other their resolve quickly fading. That's enough, Nick said. The two of them seized John and yanked him off of the man. John fought for a moment, but looked in their eyes and suddenly let up. Perhaps he saw mercy? Forgiveness? The old man scooted back against the dresser and grabbed the edge of a drawer to help him stand. It took him a moment to catch his breath. You caught me. What can I say? The three looked at each other with confusion. Huh? Nick asked. Look, you're right about one thing, he said, still panting. I'm Satan. You got me. But this 70-year-old body isn't exactly equipped to breathe hellfire, so you're pretty safe in that area. "'It was written you would return,' declared John. "'Nah, that whole thing is later,' Satan said. "'This weirdo decided to summon me, so I popped in for a little visit. "'The enchantment wears off at midnight. "'Then it's back to the pit. "'I'm just hoping to wreak a little havoc before I leave. "'That's all.' "'I knew it,' John said, readvancing with clenched fists.' Have at thee. Gay guy walks into a deli, Satan said. John stopped in his tracks. Everyone froze. Don't you dare tell that infernal joke, John snapped. Hold on, Nick said. There's no way that's the start of this ancient death joke. He walks up to the deli counter, Satan continued. Stop, John commanded. In the name of God. Whoa, whoa. All four of the men, Satan included, turned to face the door. It was Dave Attell. Hey, didn't mean to interrupt you guys. I was just walking by. Thought I heard the start of a joke there. Mr. Attell, Nick said. Trust me, this is no joke right now. Who you kidding? Dave said. Think I don't know a fucking joke when I hear one. Let's hear it, Rodney. Lay it on me. He points to the biggest baloney in the case, Satan continued. He goes, I'll take that one right there. John took another step towards Satan, but suddenly he lost his footing. His legs wobbled and he was forced to take a knee. Somehow the joke was already starting to take effect. The power of Christ compels you, he shouted. The power of Christ earplugs, Ari said. He's not stopping. John gave up his attempt at exorcism, and the three of them stuffed in their earplugs just like they had practiced. Dave Attell already had a smile creeping onto his face. Don't listen, Dave, shouted Ari. Cover your ears. Dave mouthed back silently. Shut up, dude. I gotta hear the punchline. The deli guy takes the bologna from the case and puts it up on the slicer. "'Whoa, whoa, whoa,' goes the gay guy. "'What, does my ass look like a slot machine?' They only knew the joke was over by the look on Dave's face. First, mild amusement. Then, laughter. Finally, knee-slapping laughter. His face, then his whole head, turned a deepening shade of red. Dave Attell's head exploded. Blood, brains, skull fragments. They covered every square inch of the trailer. To Nick, Ari, and John, the sound had been a muffled pop, but the earplugs had worked. They were still alive. You killed Dave Attell, you son of a bitch! Ari was livid. Attell had been one of his favorites. Get thee hence, Satan! The three men, strength returned, rushed the demon once more. This time, Ari strangled him while Nick and John pinned him down. Satan was powerless to fight back with his geriatric body, but the grin never left his face. Incensed, Nick grabbed a little mole on the left side of the demon's nose and squeezed it. He pulled it, dug his thumbnail into it. He yanked it right off the man's face. With that, Satan's eyes went dark. 6. I mean, I'd love to buy this gold bond. But I have it on good authority they rubbed this shit on a flounder. Uproarious laughter. Flounder had been Ari's idea. Turns out it was a lot easier to say than tilapia, but a sufficiently funny-named fish. After murdering Satan in his trailer, the two had become fast friends after all. He'd even helped get Ari passed at the riot room. His act was pretty good. He felt bad for dismissing him the way he had initially. Danny was right. He was a pretty nice guy, other than continuing to call him whenever he was trying to take a nap. John, Ari had recently told him, was now not just an assistant, but a full-fledged pastor at Bible Baptist Church. He even had his own machine gun now, a useful thing in case Satan decided to possess another body and come after you. But for now, things were looking up. God had lain his hand upon Nick and he acquired the comedy club from the late Alex's estate for pennies on the dollar. Not only could he go on stage whenever he wanted, but he had three taps installed on the bar. Here, here, and here. Guinness, Bud, and Bud Light. Nick walked off stage and sat at the bar. Promptly, Danny poured him a Bud. The light from the neons in the front window glimmered brilliantly in the amber liquid. Yes, indeed. Nothing beat a bud after a long day doing God's work. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special treat for you all today. A surprise appearance from the one and only Dave Attell. A wild reaction from the packed room as the real Dave Attell walked out from behind the curtain and took the stage. Turns out the guy with his head blown off was yet another Dave Attell ripoff. Uncanny, this one. He had even looked just like him. No loss for the comedy community in any case, and what a relief it was for Ari when he learned his hero was still among the living. Nick smiled and took a big swig of beer. Danny? Yeah, hon. You ever feel like your life is like some crazy kind of poorly written story? Danny smiled. Totally, she said.
2: I hope you enjoyed He's Killing Up There as written by Jeff Sturdivant and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number two, Paul J. McSorley. Don't forget, all of tonight's performances were featured in the second round of this year's 2019 Evil Idol Horror voice acting competition, hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, now and running the next several months. If you enjoyed the performances tonight visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find CTFDN and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster contestant profiles and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. We'd also like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, HelloFresh, for their support of this show. Don't forget, if you'd like to give HelloFresh a try today, as a listener, you can get 10 free meals, including free shipping, Just go to hellofresh.com slash ctdn10 and use code ctdn10 to sign up and get your savings. Once again, go to hellofresh.com slash ctdn10 and use code ctdn10 to get 10 free meals, including free shipping. Be sure to use that URL and promo code So let them know that Otis and the team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. Thanks again so much for listening and for giving HelloFresh a try this month. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help support this program. And that means a lot to us. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. It's been a pleasure, as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn about more of our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Otis Giant. The selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshik. Logo by Craig Groschen. If you're looking for some fresh tales while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, Otis Jiry's Horror Storytime, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Or search for my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, where I perform four brand-new tales every episode. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like to perform? We take submissions. Email us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave us a five star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Knights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Knights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for ctfdn as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week and don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing Leave a kind word or a request don't forget to visit us at chillingtalesfordarknights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron in addition to helping us out you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway?
0: (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.